In the last episode of History Talks, we talked about how America was founded and touched briefly on how George Washington was elected unanimously by the Electoral College. In this episode, we are discussing George Washington's presidency. And before we begin, there is no video for this week. My apologies. Welcome to History Talks with History Buff 1836, a podcast about the presidents of the United States of America. A look inside to what happened in America during their presidency. Here is your host, History Buff 1836. But before we discuss his presidency, let's first look at his life beginnings. George Washington's extended family came from Essex, England. Washington's great grandfather, John Washington, was a clergyman in the churches, but was fired when his alcohol addiction had started to affect his job duties to spread God's word. John decided to pack everything up and move over to the New World and settled in the Virginia area in 1657 for a new beginning. He quickly got a a new reputation, but it was still a bad reputation. The Native Americans referred to John as a town taker because he would always exploit legal technicalities to take away the Native Americans' land. On February 22, 1732, George Washington was born to the parents of Augustine and Mary Washington in Westmoreland County, Virginia. At age 11, his father died, and his stepbrother looked after him. At age 34, they took the trip to Barbados with his brother Lawrence, hoping to cure his case of tuberculosis. Their journey wasn't the best. While there, George caught smallpox, and Lawrence died of TB. The death of Lawrence affected him in a much similar way when he lost his father, as he looked up to Lawrence as a fatherly figure. Later in life, Washington served in the military for a while before the American Revolutionary War. After he retired, he married the girl of his dreams and widow, Martha Curtis, who was the mother of two, mother of two children. Washington became the stepfather of Jack and Martha. Before Washington married Martha, he was a poor man with no wealth. His military career wasn't bringing in any money. However, when he married Martha, he inherited her land, which was brought by her late husband, Daniel Curtis. The estate is known as Mount Vernon, and is about 8,000 acres and came with about 300 slaves, which is probably worth $88 million today, since one acre is ranging ranging from 11000 to 21000 plus United States dollars. Washington inherited the land because at this time, if a widow owned property and had remarried, it would automatically go to the new husband. This is where he became quite popular and well-known. You see, Martha was very well-known before her late husband Daniel had died. Mount Vernon was the host to many large parties and a hangout spot for the wealthy and the friends of George and Martha Washington. His political career began in 1759 when he entered the Virginia House of Burgesses. The Virginia House of Burgesses was formed in 1619. It was a representative assembly in the colony of Virginia. It included the governor of Virginia and a council, being made of delegates from the 11 settlements that made up the colony of Virginia. However, Washington was was only a member of the council for a year since he had to resign because he joined the militia. Since he had previously since he had previous military experience and he was somewhat good at it, Continental Congress elected him as the military commander during the American Revolutionary War. 
He would lead the military through the losses and wins of the war to ultimately get an allyship with France, who led the colonists to a victory. A few years after the country had been established, concerns of the Articles of Confederation arose, and the delegates were called to fix the problems, but decided on that they were a complete disaster and completely redid the government into a constitutional republic. Moreover, Washington had returned to politics when he joined the Continental Convention in 1787. We already did a whole episode on the Constitutional Convention. If you want the full details on that event, listen to the previous episode. After the Constitution was ratified, they needed to elect the first president. At the same time, the Constitution had laid out the process for for selecting a president. For electing a president. That didn't happen this time around how it happens in today's world with debates and campaigning. The electorals did meet for the Electoral College, and they voted unanimously for George Washington to be the first president under the Constitution. However, he was a little hesitant to accept, because he did not think he would be good enough or qualified enough. He was already retired in the war after the war, but came out of retirement to help with the Constitutional Convention and wanted to stay at, stay at Mount Vernon and finally retire for the rest of his life. But the Electoral College voted him in, and according to the Constitution, the second-place candidate in the Electoral College would be the vice president. Even though this isn't precisely how elections work today, this changed once candidates started running with vice presidents. He was inaugurated later that month on the 30th. Once he got to the temporary capital of New York, he spent much of the time there before being sworn into office. Having a hand on the Bible was George's idea and not required. The oath of office goes like this, quote, I do solemnly, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. End quote. And many have added, so help me God, after President Washington said that phrase after the oath. After Washington took the oath, he addressed the nation. This would be the speech after becoming president. This tradition would become the inauguration addressed. His speech was short, not as long as some presidents had made theirs. And James Madison primarily wrote Washington's speech. And the main takeaways from his addresses, first, he trusts God's aid to help him in the ever. Secondly, he wants everyone to know he is walking on untrusted ground. He hopes that there are no local prejudices or attachments, no separate views, nor party animosities. When Washington walked into the, his temporal office, because there was no White House, there was no Capitol, there wasn't a rule book per se of what he could and could not do, only to rely on the Constitution, which laid out on the executive power in Article 2, quote, the president shall be commander-in-chief of the army and navy of the United States and of the militia of several states. When called into actual service of the United States, he shall have power by and with the advice of con- the consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present conquer. And he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors other public ministries and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior offices as they think proper, in the President alone in the court of law, or the head of departments, during the his 
end quote. During his two-term presidency, he made a lot of precedents that many presidents have followed and many have become permanent law. In no particular order, here are the precedents. The first president was choosing what people should call him. The Senate coined several terms like his, ma- his elective majesty or his elective highness. There was even his highness the president of the United States and protector of their liberties. Or even simply put, his mightiness. George Washington said that many of the terms passed around sounded too close to a monarchy and created his own Mr. President. And once we get a female president, it would be Madam President. Former presidents can still be called president in, in their name or a former president in their name, like former President Washington. But only the current president can be addressed as Mr. President. The second president is choosing a cabinet. This cabinet would be a group of advisors that would help him make wise decisions. Washington knew that he didn't know everything, and he was content in gathering knowledgeable people with experience in the field. When Washington created the first cabinet, there wasn't a whole lot of departments as we see today. But the first cabinet consisted of the Secretary of State, which stayed empty for a year. Ultimately, Thomas Jefferson was appointed to the role Secretary of Treasury, controlled by Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of War Department, controlled by Henry Knox, Secretary of Attorney General, with Edmund Rudolph. Those were all the departments at the time, and more departments were created by, um, by President and Congress, and we'll talk about that when the time comes. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton had complete different political views. They were always at each other's throat, and are particularly credited at the beginning of the two-party system, Federalist and the Democratic-Republicans, or just Republicans, different from today's Democrats and Republicans. Republicans. There were many political parties like Whigs and Tea Party at this time. Whigs are more like the modern-day Republicans, and Andrew Jackson was the first somewhat modern-day Democrat. But, of course, values shift from one side to the other, or there is more of a medium over time, or values drop and stay out of the political side, and things are added to the political scope as people argue over what's important. And no, the political... The party shift that everyone talks about during the Civil War didn't really happen the way I explain it. More on that later. The last president that Washington set was only serving two terms. During this time, there was no current term limit, just a four-year term limit. And you can stay in office if you run and are voted for it. But this would change on March 21st, 1947, limiting the president to two four-year terms, meaning they can only serve for eight years. With a few exceptions, like if a vice president were to presume office in the middle of a term, that does not count toward their term limit. Now that we've covered majority of the presidents, he said, let's shift and look at the major actions he took as president. One of the first actions he did was given to him in the Constitution. It was appointing judges to fill vacancies on the newly created Supreme Court. There were only six judges at this time, but in 1869, the number was fixed to nine. In today's political world, each time a Supreme Court judge retires during a presidency, that president will get to fill that spot. But of course, with checks and balances, the Senate approves each appointee. The first appointees were John Jay for Chief Justice, John Rutledge, William Cushing, Robert H. Harrison, James Wilson, and James Blair, who all started serving in 1789. 
And there were James Arell, who started serving in 1790, and Thomas Johnson started serving in 1791. Under the Constitution, the federal government would be able to leave Texas, unlike under the Articles of Confederation. Since America was a new country, straight out of war, they were in debt. They needed to fix this. In 1791, Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, proposed the creation of the National Bank. The National Bank would hold deposits of federal funds, issue paper money, and provide loans at the government and capital for investment. Congress agreed and passed the Bank Act. The act was now sitting on Washington's desk, waiting for him to sign it. However, Washington was concerned about passing or vetoing the action. He was unsure that it would be expanding the federal government's power. He asked his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, and Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, for their written opinions on the matter. Thomas Jefferson quoted the Tenth Amendment for this matter, quote, What power was not given to the states would be given to the federal power, end quote. Jefferson did not like the idea of Washington passing it, while Hamilton was in favor of Washington passing it, because he proposed it, saying, quote, If any provision of the Constitution does not forbid the measure, it may be deemed by the compass of the national authority, since the bank would be tax- taking taxes and taxes a national issue, end quote. Washington agreed and passed the act into law, creating the first national bank. During these episodes, I want to include the states that joined the Union until we get to all 50 states. On May 29, 1790, Rhode Island finally joined the Union after ratifying the Constitution. Rhode Island was the last of the original 13 colonies to join. The newly created Constitution, Constitutional Republic of America... Washington didn't really do anything about this, but I do want to include states joining the Union as we go along with each president. Vermont also joined on March 4th in 1791, and on June 1st, 1796, Kentucky and Tennessee also joined. Soon after the inauguration, Washington made it his priority to visit each state, getting to know some of the people in each state. He first visited New England era. New, the New England area, when he ran into trouble with the state governor becoming the first conflict between a president and a governor. This all happened in Massachusetts with the governor John Hancock. You know the famous sign of the Constitution? Hancock thought that the president should call to him, call on him, making the governor superior to the president. Washington disagreed with him, knowing that the subordinate Hancock in this situation should call on to the superior in a social situation. Hancock conceded and gave the president a call establishing the president-slash-tradition the president outranked any governor. Another important thing Washington helped with was finding where the national capital will be. According to the Constitution, it needed to be separate from the state governors. It was later decided that part of the line that Maryland and Virginia owned would become part of the district forming the District of Columbia thus creating a national capital that, ha- that, was land, that has land separate from any state government. Washington chose the land between the Potomac and Atchacostica rivers. He chose the location of the city between the two rivers because the ports and port cities were very important. Now this gives easy access to the capital by boat, which might be troublesome, especially later on in 1812, but more on that when we get to that president.
Washington's second term looked like this. Fair warning, the next bit might be a little bit messy. If they're so close together and tie everything Washington did together. France was at war with Britain and both wanted America's help. Washington wanted to stay neutral, but they didn't. America never stays neutral at any war, even though they always say they will. All this was taking place while Americans were growing tired of Britain for not following the, the regulations outlined in the Treaty of Paris. They were still trying to resolve that while trying to stay neutral. And while many outbreaks of fighting were happening while settlers were trying to get more land, this starts with, with America winning the American Revolutionary War with France's aid. They signed a treaty declaring an alliance stating that they would help each other out in wartime, no matter the circumstances. But in late 1792, the French revolutionaries rejected the monarchy and announced the French Republic after the American Revolutionary after the American Revolution had inspired them. However, they did it entirely different. In January 1793, they beheaded the monarchy leader Louis XII. They then declared war on other monarchies, such as Great Britain, Holland, and Spain, while already at war with Croatia and Austria. Both Great Britain and France were asking for Americans' help. Britain was no longer mad at America, even though they didn't follow the Treaty of Paris as mentioned before. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson noted that the treaties of the alliance were probably not good anymore after the government that signed it had been dissolved. But Washington went ahead and signed the Neutrality Proclamation declaring America would be neutral in this matter. However, they were secretly sending artillery to France for the war. Hold this thought of America breaking neutral agreement while I give you the backstory on problems America was having with France. And this will all come together in a minute. Problems arose with Britain because they were not following the agreements in the Treaty of Paris. They still had people at their, for their old forts and ships on their old docks. A bill was introduced into Congress, making Britain to pay for their boats at the, at the dock. A bill was introduced into Congress, making Britain pay for their boats at the docks. Basically renting that port out. But that failed with pressure from the northern businesses not liking it and pushing back on it. In 1794, tensions were running dangerously high. Britain violated international laws by seizing American ships and taking their crew abroad and aboard into hostage-like situations. This was called imprisonment, where they were given two options, either join the British Navy or be sent to prison. Washington sent the Chief Justice John Jay over to London to try to negotiate terms. They were able to agree, but there was a lot of backlashes on it. The terms of the agreement was, num was number one, Britain would officially 100% move out of America by 1796. Secondly, they will reimburse merchants for their seizures from 1793 to 1796. Lastly, America has the right to trade with Britain Island and the West Indies. Washington approved the treaty, but the Senate was hesitant with it. There were some concerns about it. Washington's persuasion barely won the Senate's two-thirds majority. Now let's move to one of the first domestic troubles. Domestic meaning coming from within the United States and was not caused by an outside country. Washington had to control the rebellion that was being named the Whiskey Rebellion. To risky the Whiskey Rebellion was a rebellion that started as a protest over taxes. A federal tax was put on liquor, failing whiskey, and this tax was recommended by the State of Treasury Alexander Hamilton's suggestion to help the country get out of debt. However, this tax 
wouldn't lead to protests and rebellions. What do you think would have happened after protesting all the Texas without representation that led to a rebellion against the British government and led to a war and the colonists declaring independence toward British government? They were a little salty because the liquor was the most valuable product and was their way of life in the West and being used as currency. They tried to repeal the taxes, but they failed. By September 1791, angry groups that consisted of farmers, militiamen, and other Western civilizations started to attack federal tax collectors and marshals. By the summer of 1794, the resistance had exploded into full-blown rebellion. The Supreme Court declared Western Pennsylvania in a state of rebellion. Washington ordered the rebels to be gone by September 1st, or he would send them to the military. However, they did not listen to Washington's threat. He sent around 12,500 troops to Pennsylvania, and those rebellion got scared when they saw them coming. Before the troops had entered Pennsylvania, Washington met them on horseback in his military uniform and led the way to Pennsylvania. This would be the only time a sitting president would lead troops. 24 rebels were charged with two troops. With treason, two of them were sent to be hanged, but Washington had pardoned all of them. Pardoning is an executive privilege that most modern-day presidents usually pardon around the end of the year or toward the end of their terms as campaigning is firing up. When someone is pardoned, their charges are dropped and erased from their record and cannot be tried again for that charge unless they commit that crime again. While the Whiskey Rebellion was happening, the Americans and the Spanish government were negotiating terms over the control of the Mississippi River, the largest river in the east that runs north and south. Having control of the Mississippi River would be, the, would be great for the American trade. However, the Mississippi River wasn't the only thing they were negotiating about. They were also talking about boundaries of the Florida Territory, setting up present-day Florida. The main negotiator was Thomas Pickering. The negotiations turned in the favor, and he won in 1795 when Spain accepted that American boundary would be at the 31st parallel in the West. This would be the border of Florida and Georgia currently. They also agreed that Americans could ship goods through the Mississippi River to the port of New Orleans. The Spanish would still be in control of the New Orleans port. The Senate was satisfied with the treaty and ratified it and was named the Pickney's Treaty, or the Treaty of San Lorenzo. Washington had some fallout during his second term, which led to some of his staff quitting. Throughout a um, president, uh, throughout Throughout a presidency, at least one staffer resigned. There are many reasons for a staff member or or the president to, staff member of the president to quit. Some being disagreement with the presidency, with the president's opinions, or just changing their job, moving on to better things for themselves. Just as anyone else would quit and change their job. Anyway, here is a list of all the all of Washington's staff members quitting. Alexander Hamilton resigned in January 1775. Probably because of the public's fallout with the bank and tax ideas, Oliver Wolcott replaced him. Henry Knox resigned in 1795 and was replaced by Thomas Pickering. Finally, I want to talk about George Washington's leaving the White House after two terms in his farewell speech, plus the legacy he left when we come back from the break. There was not set term limits during this time, limiting how many terms a president can serve. But George Washington set a precedent or tradition of only serving two four-year terms. As he left the office, he set another precedent by giving a farewell address. I'm not going to read it 
in this episode, but I will read it in a different episode. We'll be reading the speech in full. I want to talk about the main takeaways from the address, however. Most of the takeaways are warnings to America. He gave three warnings and the reasonings for the warnings. He warned about political parties and how the political parties will tear the country apart. And that we should just be united Americans. Be united is the best possible option for us. Saying, quote, you have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. Continuing with the independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils, joint efforts, common dangers, sufferings, and success, end quote. He also warns that foreign policy allies or partnerships with other countries would open a door for foreign influence that will cause corruption. Instead, that we should all be on good terms of all nations. Washington's legacies were the precedents he had established throughout his first years, although part of his legacy was the formation of a cabinet where he relied on so-called experts in certain areas. While you might argue that cabinet creation is part of the precedent that he created, it is, but I wanted to make it stand out because the cabinet and members have played a crucial part in each president and their decision-making. While Washington had hopes of finally retiring after coming out of retirement for the Constitutional Convention and being president for eight years, the next president, John Adams, had other plans for Washington. In 1798, Congress approved the Provisional Army as the quasi-war with France had accelerated. President John Adams asked Washington to come out of retirement once again for like the third time to lead the army once again. Washington was reluctant to agree, but he did with two promises. And we'll talk about those two promises more in John Adams' episode. See you next time on History Talks.